Good morning. So good to be with you. I'm Steve Friesen, one of the retired pastors here at Grace, and so fun to be able to hang around and still be part of the family. And uh, thank you for coming. Maybe you're on vacation, visiting family, uh, wherever you are. It's, well, you're here. And I thank you. It's good to see you. Um, I'm pinch hitting. I hesitate to tell you this. For the next 10 weeks, no. For the... <laughs> For the next three weeks. And so please come back next week, okay? <laughs> but it's so great that our pastoral team, who serve us so well, get a chance to be away. That's very important. And so please be praying for Pastor Jack, Pastor Will, Pastor Kyle. And um, it's my honor to, to step in. And I don't take this lightly. But... Um, I am just grateful for the opportunity to open God's Word with you this morning, and Lord willing, in the next several weeks. 56 years ago, 1966 is the year. I don't know how many of you were living in 1966. Okay. Okay. I feel better already. <laughs> so there was this Italian movie-making company that produced a group of three Westerns, Italy, yes, Westerns about the United States. And so they call them spaghetti westerns because they're made in Italy. But the third of these three movies, westerns that were made, was called The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. You know, some of you know about that. Pastor Sean said, Yeah, watch that with my dad. Um, I've never seen the movie, but the movie featured 36 year old, relatively new to the scene, Clint Eastwood. Among other actors, two other ones, Lee Van Cleef, Eli Wallach. Each of these are playing the role of ruthless gunslingers searching for gold, buried gold during the Civil War here in the United States. And guess who plays the part of the good? Clint Eastwood. Clint Eastwood, yes. And if you saw Eli Wallach, you would know he's the ugly. Evanelli. <laughs> I don't know these things, but. And Lee Van Cleef is the bad. Well, anyway, so these three guys are characterized in this way. Evidently, though they're all bad, how could you call one good and the other bad, etc.? It just, they're all killers and they're all looking for gold and greed. I guess it's the degree of their greed and they're, what they're willing to do to find this hidden loot that distinguishes them. So um, maybe you've seen the movie. I'm not necessarily recommending it, but the reason I'm bringing it up this morning is that the title, Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, kind of reminds me of three characters that we're going to look at in these next three weeks from the Gospel of John, John 3, Nicodemus, John 4, the woman at the well, John 5, the, woman, the man at the pool. And um, they kind of fit into these slots, good, bad, and ugly. Now, I realize labels are dangerous things, so I'm not calling them those things. Because labels reflect our own prejudices. So we don't have the authority to really throw those terms around at people. That would not be wise. Especially given our summer quest verse. One of them, Romans 3, 10 to 11a, remember? As it is written, none is righteous. So we can't call anybody good from God's perspective. Spiritually speaking, all of us are a mess inside. And we know what it's like to be separated from the life of God to be dead in our sins, to be without hope, except for the grace that God lavishes on us through his son, Jesus. 
sent into the world as we just celebrated at great personal cost to him to rescue us and to bring us back into a love relationship with the Father that he longs to have with us. So our world will look at people and they'll go, oh yeah, that's a good person. Ever been called a good old boy? I, you know, people who call me that, I go, I'm not sure that's a good thing, but maybe me, somebody without a spine, somebody who's nice on the outside, I don't know. But we'll look at somebody and say, that's a good person. Or we'll look at somebody else and go, you know, that guy's pretty bad. Or we'll say, ooh, um, there goes a person who is so desperate, they're acting really ugly. And we know that's a human judgment. God understands our true moral depravity better than anybody, but he also sees us with kind eyes. And that is such good news. And he can, he's the only one that can do something to transform us from the inside out into the people that he created us to be. So John 3 is today's passage. Jesus meets a man. He's the good one. He's the moral, successful Jewish national leader. His name is Nicodemus. I grew up in Japan. We served in Japan. In Japanese, you say Nikodemo, Nicodemus, Nikodemo. And, and missionaries learning Japanese, they might say, instead of Nikodemo, they would say Nekodemo, which means only a cat. <laughs> Many a missionary has made that mistake to the amusement of their audience. Nicodemus, Nicodemus. He's moral, he's successful. His resume is amazing, and he's highly respected by others. But Nicodemus is missing something in his life, and he doesn't know that he's missing it. He's missing a basic connection with God. He has all the outward trappings, but he doesn't have the inward connection with Jesus, with God. So in John 4, we're going to look, that's Nicodemus, John 3. Next week, Lord willing, in John 4, we have the bad, so to speak, the Samaritan woman of questionable reputation whose heart is thirsting for, but she can't seem to find the fulfillment that she's looking for. And then in John 5, we'll look at, Lord willing, two weeks from today, we have the ugly. It's a term Jesus did not use of that man, but which others might use to describe him. He's desperate. He's lonely. He has this long-term illness. He's incapacitated. His body is just not functioning, and he's oozing despair from every single pore of his soul and his body. His heart is a mess, but Jesus sees him as lovable, offers him what he really needs, that internal and that external healing and hope that have been totally eluding him. So those are our three characters. And unlike the gunslingers in the movie that are looking for something of supreme value in this world's eyes, gold, these three are looking for something the world cannot possibly give them. What they're looking for is an encounter with the true and living God. Jesus is going to give it to them. So I'd like, to, I'd like to ask you and I'd like to ask myself, so how would you view yourself this morning, where you are? If you had to put yourself in one of those three, like the good or the bad, or the, I'm not saying this is the good and this is the bad, this is the other. I'm not saying that at all. I just kind of realized what I was doing here. Um, you guys are good. <laughs> 
So how do you view yourself <laughs> You Would you say, you know, I think I'm good. I mean, I, uh, I'm a decent person. I work hard at what I do. I think I'm not hurting anybody. I'm okay. I think I'm, I'm good. I think I'm good. Okay, you're, you're good. How about maybe you would say, no, I think uh, I'm kind of bad. I've been hurt so badly. It really doesn't matter how I treat people because I'm just reacting out of my pain and they deserve it, what they've done to me. Or would you put yourself in the ugly category, which is, I just can't stand myself. I know I'm a mess. I don't know how to get out of this. So whether we're into self-improvement or self-protection or self-loathing, I think it's valid to say that all of us deep down need desperately what Jesus has to offer us. And so my, my desire in these next three weeks in uncovering how Jesus connects with people in these categories, with our friends in John, that will also be drawn into that circle of life deep, more and more deeply with him. That's my heart. So now let's look at Jesus meets the good man in John 3. So in John 2, which is the context to this, this passage, we know that this encounter with Nicodemus takes place early in Jesus' three-year public ministry. In verse 13 of chapter 2, we read that the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So the reason he's meeting this Jewish leader in Jerusalem is that he's there, Jesus is there to celebrate the Passover. The Feast of Passover is one of the three required by God annual national feasts. It's a national celebration to celebrate what? The deliverance of God, of his people Israel from slavery in Egypt 1,500 years before. And it, this celebration has happened every year. So the mood in Jerusalem is joyful. It's boisterous. Even though the heavy hand of the Romans are still there, soldiers are patrolling the stone streets of the holy city. But on Passover, the city is flooded with two, three, four times the population of the city on a normal basis. People come from out of town, out of country. It, they're coming to the spiritual and political center of the country. It's kind of like Washington, D.C., maybe on Memorial Day weekend or Independence Day weekend. There's a festive mood. The focus of all the spiritual festivity in Jerusalem is on the holiest place in the whole city, which is that temple that glorious temple, it's been rebuilt 500 years before by Zerubbabel, 70 years after it was destroyed, Solomon's temple. And then, more recently, Zerubbabel's humble temple has magnificently been refurbished into one of the wonders of the ancient world by King Herod the Great, who died not long after Jesus was born. It's an awesome, glorious place. So in this passage preceding the record, of our encounter with Nicodemus, we read that Jesus went into the temple during the feast, and he did something that just totally blew people away. He expelled greedy sacrifice sellers and money changers with their animals and their coins. He cleaned house. He called it my father's house. That's a claim to be the unique son of God. It's announcing to the nation 
that a true relationship with this Father, the true and living God, would require wholesale internal cleansing, not just external religious ceremony. And we learn, you, you and I can look good on the outside, but God sees what's on the inside. He knows our true heart condition. And by cleansing the temple, Jesus is putting everybody on notice that he has the authority and the passion to take out the garbage in our lives, to restore true life and worship, and to bring peace and spiritual health to the core of our beings, if we'll let him. So his brazen temple cleaning is accompanied by amazing signs that he does, miracles. And the whole city is just kind of stirred up, Passover on steroids. And Jewish religious authorities are not really pleased that there's a rival. Somebody else is drawing all the people's attention. They're upset, and they're immediately examining what his credentials are. Who are you to do all this? Who do you claim you are? And so they, they, they examine him, but not all the leaders of the Jews are viewing this rabbi from Galilee as a threat. One night, during the feast, one of them comes to see Jesus. There's a knock on the door. Yes, Jesus. Yeah, there's someone outside. He says he wants to see you. He, he looks pretty important, says he has some questions. He wants to interact with you. Fine, send him in. I love the fact that Jesus welcomes. He's accessible to people. I think the Lord had probably put in a full day of ministry. Uh, he didn't say, you know, I've interacted with so many people today. Whew, I am just so tired. Can we reschedule this guy? Anybody in need who comes to see him receives a welcome from Jesus. That is really good news. So into the room walks this Nicodemus. He's an elderly gentleman. He holds himself well. He wears the robes of a Pharisee. Those in the know would recognize him as a member of the highest Jewish religious ruling council. It's called the Sanhedrin. And it's the Romans had given this Jewish leadership body the authority to handle all the everyday affairs of their country. It's kind of like our Congress. So Jesus, John describes the encounter. That's point one if you care about an outline. This way, in verses one and two of chapter three. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So what kind of man is this? Well, Nicodemus is a respected, upright, good man. He's theologically trained in the Old Testament scriptures. As a Pharisee, he's part of the strictest religious sect in Israel. They would have been concerned about Greek and Roman pagan influence on their Jewish peers, on their culture. Nicodemus is careful to obey the Old Testament law. In fact, he's a teacher of the law. He's likely one of the most influential teachers in Israel. Jesus calls him in verse three, verse 10 of chapter 3, the teacher of Israel. 
And so as a ruler, a member of the Sanhedrin, Nicodemus would have wealth, he'd have influence, he'd have respect, he'd have status. He would almost be like one of our Supreme Court justices, up till now, highly respected. Imagine someone like the former senator, Ted Kennedy, who died 13 years ago. Imagine Ted Kennedy come in to see Jesus. Ooh, yeah, quite a visitor, Jesus. Ted came from a prestigious family. We all know the Kennedy family. He graduated from Harvard. He had an East Coast Law School degree. He served for over 40 years in the U.S. Senate. His father was a U.S. ambassador to Great Britain. His brother, John, of course, JFK, president. Ted received the highest civilian award that you could receive in the United States the, as a civilian, the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Four ex-presidents attend Ted Kennedy's funeral. He's buried in Arlington National Cemetery. That's the kind of man Nicodemus is. He's highly respected. This great leader is seeking the presence of Jesus. And we're not told why he came. Whether Is this a personal visit, Nicodemus? Or are you representing the nation and its leaders? We don't know. He does say in verse 2, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. Sounds like maybe he's speaking for more than just himself. He addresses Jesus with respect, rabbi. He affirms him as a teacher from God. So these are compliments. And so we surmise that he's interested in having a conversation, maybe discussing the teachings of Jesus. And where do you get this power? He wants a teacher-to-teacher dialogue. But here's the deal. Nicodemus has no clue as to whose presence he is in. And he doesn't understand his own personal spiritual need. But when you meet with Jesus, that need is going to come to the surface. But he's drawn to Jesus. So I love the fact that Jesus knew the true condition of Nicodemus' heart, and he's still glad to be with him. That goes for you and me, too. He knows that underneath an impeccable resume is a man who lacks a real relationship with God. That's the kind of person Jesus loves to hang out with, to show them what they need. So Jesus wasted no time in getting to the heart of Nicodemus' need. He didn't say, whoa, I'm so honored to have such a wonderful man and national leader come visit me and talk theology. I know a few things about God and the Old Testament, kingdom. What would you like to know, sir? No, instead of engaging in a theological discussion, Jesus, number two, if you're following the outline, issues a call to Nicodemus. It's to a radical personal transformation that God can only provide. Even the best need a new birth, Nicodemus. Listen up, sir. Jesus ignored the direction that Nicodemus wants to go, and he spoke to the core issue of his heart. You, sir, need to be reconciled with God. You need to be forgiven. You need to receive and enjoy the gift of eternal life. That's how you enter the kingdom of God. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, or I tell you the truth, or I assure you, amen, amen. What comes next is absolutely the gospel truth. So pay attention, Nicodemus. Verse 3, 
unless one is born again. He cannot see the kingdom of God. If we had sound effects here, it would be bam. What? That's the bottom line. Enter the kingdom of God. To enter it, you need to be born again. What is that? It's not about being a religious person. It's not about saying the right words. It's not about going to the right places. It's not about reading the Bible, although that's good. It's not about memorizing, praying, giving to God, any of that. It's not about presenting what I can do for God and how good I am. It's not about being the son of Abraham or about being a Jew. It's not about being a Kennedy or a Friesen or the son of a pastor or a missionary. It's not bad to be good, right? I mean, that's not bad, but it's not enough to qualify us for the kingdom of God. Following the law, living as a moral person, doesn't make me acceptable to my creator. I don't need an upgrade. Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, you need a whole new operating system. You need a new birth. So, let's ask the question. Would you say you've experienced what it means to be born again? Have you been born again? Do you understand what this means? To Nicodemus, it's a whole new idea. To be born means to receive life, right? Again can also mean from above or from God. Receiving new life from God means, that's what it means, born again. Jesus is saying a good person is still a son of Adam, born dead to God in spiritual darkness. If we're born physically, that's a, that life is a gift from God. But since we're separated from God and dead to God because of our membership in the fallen human race and because of our own sin, we need spiritual transformation and life. We need to be born again to receive life that God offers in order to enter his family and kingdom. We don't need to just turn over a new leaf. We need a whole new book. So Jesus is telling Nicodemus, it's not about how much your righteousness stacks up in God's presence. You receive something that he offers you by faith in his son. Well, this is shocking because Nicodemus thinks, I'm okay, right? I'm pretty good. I'm better than most. But Jesus said in his sermon on the mount in Matthew 5.20, something so surprising. He said, for I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. They are the top rung. They think they are there. But their, their righteousness is not nearly enough to qualify them for my presence. You can't add righteousness up and make it. Our human efforts to please God are insufficient to qualify for him. So a new birth means you receive new life from God through faith in his son. Paul wrote in Titus 3.5. These are familiar verses to us. He saved us not on the basis of deeds that we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. Paul told the Ephesians, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved through faith. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works. Why? So that no one may boast. 
Nicodemus would fit Paul's description of his fellow Jews that he wrote about in Romans 10, 2 to 4. Paul wrote, For I testify about them, these are Jews who don't know God, that they have a zeal for God, they look good, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For... Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That's where you get your righteousness. That's where you get your new birth, from Jesus, through faith in him. Uh, it's not a secret. I enjoy golf once in a while. Two retired pastors play occasionally. And uh, so we enjoy it. Butch Harmon is somebody that anybody who golfs knows his name. He was one of the top-ranked golf instructors in the world. And though he's now retired, he used to charge $600 an hour to help professional golfers improve their games. Butch would analyze your swing, and then he'd teach you how to maximize your gifts. But you know, in the spiritual realm, we don't need new swing techniques. We don't need tweaks and adjustments. We need transformation. And Nicodemus going to Jesus and being told that he needs to be born again would be like a golfer going to Butch Harmon and being told, you don't need swing tips, you need a new body. <laughs> Nicodemus' response to Jesus shows that he didn't get it. He did not get it at all. Number three, he was totally confused about what it meant to be born again. This is new stuff, and he doesn't perceive it. But let's not be too hard on him. It's not always easy to understand and believe the truth. We need God's help here. Because if you think you're doing fine, you don't understand basic spiritual realities. And so Nicodemus asks Jesus this interesting question. It's almost humorous, but he asks in verse 4, um, excuse me, but... How can a man be born when he is old? You say born again. Like, how do I go back there and do that? Uh, and then he says this. Can, he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Don't even try to picture it. My mom is 97. I know there's no hope there. Yeah. <laughs> do you think Jesus smiled here? I don't know. But he didn't belittle the question. That's what we know. In our natural state, we just can't perceive the things of God. Like in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the Apostle Paul wrote, The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they're spiritually discerned. You might have a college degree. I might have a seminary degree. You might have a law school education. You might have gotten high honors and good grades in school all the way through. It does not mean that you or I understand and can perceive spiritual truth without God's help. Nicodemus couldn't. And so Jesus answered his question by telling him, in effect, look, Nicodemus, I'm not talking about a repeat of the birth experience, the natural birth experience. I'm talking about being born of the Spirit. I'm talking about another dimension. 
I'm talking about spiritual transformation and new life. I'm talking about being cleansed and given a new connection with God through faith. I'm talking about born again from above. God is the one that's giving me new spiritual life and making me a member of his family. And then he explains to Nicodemus, verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. These things only produce after their kind. Plants produce plants. Animals produce animals. Sinners produce sinners. Thank you. No matter how well-mannered we are, that's the way it is. So, flesh produces flesh. Jesus saying natural and fallen man can only produce natural life, even if it's good. There is no gradual ascent of self-improvement into the presence of God. It doesn't work that way. There's a biblical commentator who said it this way, that which is born of flesh is flesh. It may be refined flesh, it may be beautiful flesh, it may be religious flesh, but it's still flesh. Only God can produce and give eternal life by his spirit to a person. So, you know, from that perspective, just as physical life and birth is not based on the efforts of the baby, I think I'm going to get born. No, babies don't do that. They receive life, right? They are given life. They are born. Someone else is doing the effort. Just like life and birth physically is not based on the efforts of the baby, there's nothing I can do for myself to get myself born again spiritually. That's a work that God does in my heart when I receive Jesus. Well, this is a story I've told many times, but it's one of my favorites, and I think it really has bearing here. One summer ago, many years ago, Bobby and I and our family were on vacation in Japan, Karuizawa, beautiful place. We were missionaries there before we came to Grace 25 years ago. And uh, we met this Japanese woman on vacation. She was there with her parents and her kids. But because of his busy schedule, her husband wasn't on vacation with the family. And so we were visiting about things, and she told me a story, and she prefaced it with this comment. She goes, my husband is crazy. Okay, that tweaked my interest. Uh, What do you mean he's crazy? I asked her. I maybe didn't say it that strongly. Oh, really? Like what? So she said, well, my husband is a surgeon. He's a doctor. He was in a car accident once where in the accident, he, he, his leg was broken, so he had to have surgery on it, and the surgery did not go well. The leg didn't heal up. But instead of going back to have someone else, someone else repair his leg, he decided to do surgery on his own leg, okay? Only in Japan. <laughs> I'm thinking, okay, gathers his own clinic team together, gives himself a local anesthetic, and he cuts himself open and fixes his own leg. And you're going, gross, that is crazy. I go, that's exactly what I said. Wow, he is crazy. That is the height of self-improvement. <laughs> so I was impressed by this man's prowess, his courage. But my, you know the thought that came to me right there after that was, 
Hmm, I wonder what he would do if he had heart problems. <laughs> yeah. Okay, no matter how good you are, how crazy you are, how skilled you are, you cannot do your own open heart surgery. Would you agree with that? Yes. Self-improvement has its limits. Jesus is telling Nicodemus, look, you might be a good old boy, but you need to be born again. Someone else has to transform your heart and fix what's wrong between you and your creator. And I'm so glad that Jesus, the divine doctor, is in, and he can do this. Amen. He's not afraid of operating on anybody because he knows what we need. He looked, Jesus looked this veteran of public and religious affairs in the eyes. I think his eyes shone with warmth and grace. He said to Nicodemus, don't be surprised that I'm telling you you need to be born again. I mean, there are things in the physical realm that we can't fully understand and control, like the wind, for example. You can feel its effects, you can hear the sound, especially in Kansas. But you can't predict where it's coming from or where it's going. There's mystery behind the wind, and that's the way it is with being born in the Spirit. How the Holy Spirit operates on our soul, how He subdues our will, how He creates new life within us, there's a mystery there that you can't understand. But the reality of it and the need for it is unchanged. I mean, if you had to understand how a computer works or how your cell phone works before you got one, we'd still be writing on paper, typing. You go, what's a typewriter? I know. It's old. <laughs> you don't have to understand the mechanics of the new birth. You just accept Jesus' word for it, that we need it. If he says you must, that means you, I, must be born again. But Nicodemus is still stuck. I mean, he asks again, verse 9, how can these things be? Not only is he struggling to grasp the nature of his true condition and need, but Nicodemus shows a lack of understanding of Scripture and the true identity of who's talking to him. The Bible talks about a new birth, Ezekiel, and other places, Jeremiah. But those didn't register. If you knew your Old Testament, you shouldn't be surprised that I'm telling you this, Nicodemus. But Jesus could see the furrows on Nicodemus' face and the doubt in his heart. He could feel it. And I think he's saying, Nicodemus, look, I know you're struggling to believe what I'm telling you about the new birth. This is not advanced spirituality. This is basic spirituality 101. There's no entrance into the kingdom without this. No possible growth unless, if you skip this step. So if you're struggling to accept what I'm telling you, listen to my resume. Listen to my resume. Maybe that helps. Point four, verses 13 to 18. Jesus lays out to Nicodemus his claims to be the unique son of God and the unique son of man, God in human flesh. And then Jesus explains to Nicodemus his true identity and his mission. This is beautiful. He says, I'm not a teacher from God. I'm God come to teach. I'm God come to save and bring this new birth that you need. And then Jesus spoke of his death to Nicodemus. Whoa! And then he refers to the story in Numbers 21 of God's judgment on people of Israel who were complaining and bitter and grumbling. And Remember, God sent these poisonous serpents 
to judge his people. And they cried out to God, to Moses. And God said to Moses, look, okay, make a bronze snake, put it high up on a pole. Anybody bitten by the poisonous serpent, if he looks at the bronze snake on the pole, he will live. That's it? Yeah, don't crawl to the pole. You don't have to grab that snake. No, just look, just look. Jesus said to Nicodemus, as Moses, verse 15, lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This is where it starts. Have you started there? Trusting Jesus as your Savior is the doorway to radical spiritual transformation and entrance in his kingdom. Well, I wish I knew what happened to Nicodemus because at this point in the story, he goes away. And what happened? Evidently, he didn't go away from this encounter being born again. All we know, it was hard. And he couldn't understand. That's all we know. But over the next months and years, I think God was speaking to Nicodemus' heart. Jesus planted this truth. And eventually, I believe it bore fruit. The thing I know here, or I notice here, is that Jesus gave time to Nicodemus to process. He planted seeds, let the Spirit cultivate. He didn't say to Nicodemus, son, you're not leaving here tonight until you're born again. No, he let him go. That's good for us. He planted, not pressured. When did it come together for Nicodemus? Several clues. Uh, there's a time in John 7 where Nicodemus speaks up on the Sanhedrin going, uh, we should examine what Jesus is saying before we condemn him. They go, you didn't believe in him, are you? Are you one of those? Uh, then also after Jesus' crucifixion, we're told that Nicodemus helps Joseph of Arimathea, John 19, 39, bury, lovingly bury, ask Pilate for the body of Jesus, and then bury Jesus. That's coming out for Nicodemus, identifying with Jesus. What are the takeaways as we close? I think there are two. One is, if you have been depending on your own efforts to please God, saying, I need to be good, I need to try harder, I need to row harder and faster. No, that's not the way. Establishing our own righteousness in order to be accepted does not work. Let's embrace that. You must be born again. So if Jesus said that, it's true. Take his word for it. And if God's saying to you this morning, look, you look good on the outside, but you've never opened your heart and placed your faith in me, Jesus, then I invite you to do that today. Accept his righteousness and the new life he offers in the Spirit. Then you will be born again. The other takeaway is, those of us who have been born again, we have God's life within us. Because of the grace that we've received, there's no room for boasting or pride. There's no room for a judgmental spirit, a critical spirit toward those who still need Jesus. Jesus loves them. Or for that matter, there's no room for a judgmental spirit for our, toward our brothers and sisters who also belong to him. Um, Jesus really suffered and died because he cared. 
to give us life. And I think a grateful heart would go a long way. Um, final story. When I was on staff here many years ago, um, I went to the men's restroom one day, and you know, you have your favorite place. You always go to the same stall, right? So I did. And uh, I peered into the toilet to check it out before I was using it. That's a good thing. And there was a wad of soggy toilet paper in the bottom of the stool. Okay, you all know what that is. I should have gotten the plunger out at that point. And uh, instead I thought, yeah, it's, it'll probably go down if I flush. And it didn't. So you know how the water just like, oh. <laughs> And so I'm watching, and it just overflows, just gushes over the top of the stool. And there we have Grace Lake right there in the men's bathroom. And I'm going, oh, man. So I went to the custodial closet, because I know where it is. And there's a bucket and a mop, and I cleaned it up. And as I'm cleaning up the mess, I'm thinking a proud thought. It's not something I'm proud of for thinking, because... It was this, I'm a pastor here. Why am I cleaning a toilet? You know, that was, and when, when I have those kind of thoughts, it's often when God speaks. And uh, what I heard was, wait a minute, Steve, I did something way more dirty for you. I took your sins. I suffered for you. I bore your judgment so that you could belong to me so you could be born again, so you could participate in my life and my kingdom. You could be part of my mission. You could enjoy me forever. I took a bullet for you, a big one. God hates pride. He loves gratitude. I'm not amazed that I need to be born again. I'm amazed at the lengths that my God would go to make it possible to be born again. There is a way, and it's Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, thank you, Father, for the precious gift of life in your Son, Jesus, for the new birth that you offer all who come to you and acknowledge their sin and their emptiness, their need. And whether we be good on the outside or messed up on the inside, I thank you that you see us as we are with tender, kind eyes. Thank you that you've opened the door into your kingdom and into your presence through the sacrificial work of your Son who died and rose, that we might live with you forever. Thank you for taking care of our mess, cleaning house, cleaning heart, that transplant of life from you to us. Your righteousness in us is our only hope. And we praise you and thank you for that. May we be humble and grateful all through this week. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Steve. Thank you for reminding us how much God loves us and how he pursues us, and how he humbled himself to do the things that maybe we think shouldn't be done. Well, if you have had something planted in your heart or in your mind, and God is drawing you to him, and you need to make a decision or to talk to somebody or pray with somebody about that, there will be a pastor or some elders up front. Come up front and talk to us. We would love to talk with you and to pray with you. And um, on the note of planting, I'm going to plant one more idea in your head before you go. Spaghetti. Okay? 
There's a lot of spaghetti, and it's really good. I had a little between services and, and garlic bread and all that. The youth are ready to serve you. They are waiting on you. So uh, go have lunch, fellowship, grab some people, fill a table, have a great day. Um, so if you would, I'd just like to pray with you before we go. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we just come to you. Thank you so much for the fact that you plant the seeds. You're not pushy. You are patient, and you wait, and you pursue. And we thank you also, Lord, that you'd humbled yourself to come and to do something that no one should have had to do and that no one would desire to do except for you. You are incredible. Thank you for your love for us. Lord, we just love you and praise you. Amen. Grace, we are the church. Let's go be the church. Grace, you are sent.